Chapter 4 of Where Love Is by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 4 The Great Frock Episode. Jimmy Padgate was the son of a retired commander in the Navy, of irreproachable birth and breeding, of a breezy, impulsive disposition, and with a pretty talent as an amateur actor. Finding idleness the root of all boredom, he took to the stage and during the first week of his first provincial tour fell in love with the leading lady, a fragile waif of a woman of vague upbringing. That so delicate a creature should have to face the miseries of a touring life, the comfortless lodgings, the ill-cooked food, the damp death-traps of dressing-rooms, the long, circuitous Sunday train journeys, roused him to furious indignation. He married her right away, took her incontinently from things theatrical, and found congenial occupation in adoring her. But the hapless lady survived her marriage only long enough to see Jimmy safe into short frocks, and then fell sick and died. The impulsive sailor educated the boy in his own fashion for a dozen years or so, and then he, in his turn, died, leaving his son a small inheritance to be administered by his only brother, an easy-going bachelor in a government office. This inheritance sufficed to send Jimmy to Harrow, where he began his lifelong friendship with Morland King, and to the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris, where he learned many useful things besides the method of painting pictures. When he returned to London, his uncle handed him over the hundred or two that remained, and, his duty having been accomplished, fell over a precipice in the Alps and concerned himself no more about his nephew. Then Jimmy set to work to earn his living. When he snatched the child Aline from the embraces of her tipsy aunt and carried her out into the street, wondering what in the world he should do with her, he was just under thirty years of age. How he had earned a livelihood till then and kept himself free from debt, he scarcely knew. When he obtained a fair price for a picture, he deposited a lump sum with his landlord in respect of rent in advance, another sum with the keeper of the little restaurant where he ate his meals, and frittered the rest away among his necessitous friends. In the long intervals between sales, he either went about penniless, or provided himself with pocket-money by black and white or other odd work that comes in the young artist's way. His residence at that time consisted in a studio and a bedroom in Camden Town. His wants were few, his hopes were many. He loved his art, he loved the world. His optimistic temperament brought him smiles from all those with whom he came into contact, even from dealers when he wasted their time in expounding to them the commercial value of an unmarketable picture. He was quite happy, quite irresponsible. When soberer friends reproached him for his hand-to-mouth way of living, he argued that if he scraped to-day, he would probably spread the butter thick to-morrow, thus securing the average, the golden mean, which was the ideal of their respectability. As for success, that elusive will-over-the-wisp, the man who did not enjoy the humour of failure never deserved to succeed. But when he had rescued Aline from the limbo over the small apothecary's shop, as thoughtlessly and as gallantly as his father before him had rescued the delicate lady from the trials of theatrical vagabondage, he found himself face to face with a perplexing problem. That first night he had risen from an amorphous bed he had arranged for himself on the studio floor, and entered his own bedroom on tiptoe, and looked with pathetic helplessness on the tiny child asleep beneath his bedclothes. If it had been a boy, he would have had no particular puzzle. A boy could have been stowed in a corner of the studio, where he could have learned manners and the fear of God, 
and the way of smiling at adversity. He would have profited enormously, as Jimmy felt assured, by his education. But with a girl it was vastly different. An endless vista of shadowy, dreamy, delicate possibilities perplexed him. He conceived women as beings ethereal, with a range of exquisite emotions denied to masculine coarseness. Even the Rue Bonaparte had not destroyed his illusion, and he still attributed to the fair maenad of the Bal des Quatre Arts the lingering fragrance of the original psyche. Of course Jimmy was a fool, as ten years afterwards Norma had decided, but this view of himself not occurring to him, he had to manage according to his lights. Here was this mysterious embryo goddess entirely dependent on him, no corner of the studio and rough-and-tumble discipline for her. She must sleep on down and be coveted with silk. The ears of heaven must not visit her cheek too roughly. The clatter of the brazen world must not be allowed to deafen her to her own sweet imminent harmonies. Jimmy was sorely perplexed. His charwoman next morning could throw no light on the riddle. She had seven children of her own, four of them girls, and they had to get along the best way they could. She was of opinion that if let alone and just physicked when she had any complaint, Aline would grow up of her own accord. Jimmy said that this possibility had not struck him, but doubtless the lady was right. Could she tell him how many times a day a little girl ought to be fed, and what she was to eat? The charwoman's draught upon her own family experiences enlightened Jimmy so far that he put a sovereign into her hand to provide a dinner for her children. After that he consulted her no more. It was an expensive process. Meanwhile it was obvious that a studio and one bedroom would not be sufficient accommodation, and Jimmy, greatly daring, took a house. He also engaged a resident housekeeper for himself and a respectable cat for Aline, and when he had settled down, after having spent every penny he could scrape together on furniture, began to wonder how he could pay the rent. A month or two before he would have as soon thought of buying a palace in Park Lane as renting a house in St. John's Wood, a cheap, shabby little house, it is true, but still a house, with drawing-room, dining-room, bedrooms, and a studio built over the space where once the garden tried to smile. He wandered through it with a wonderment quite as childish as that of Aline, who had helped him to buy the furniture. But how was he ever going to pay the rent? After a time he ceased asking the question. The ravens that fed Elijah provided him with the twenty quarterly pieces of gold. Picture-dealers of every hue and grade supplied him with the wherewithal to live. In those early days he penetrated most of the murky byways of his art, alleys he would have passed by with pinched nose a year before, when an empty pocket and an empty stomach concerned himself alone. Now, when the money for the last picture had gone, and no more was forthcoming by way of advance on royalties, on plates, and the black-and-white market was congested, he did amazing things. He copied old masters for a red-faced beery print-seller in Frith Street, who found some mysterious market for them. The price can be gauged by the fact that years afterwards Jimmy recognised one of his own copies in an auction-room, and heard it knocked down as a genuine Velasquez for eleven shillings and sixpence. He also painted oil landscapes for a dealer who did an immense trade in this line, selling them to drapers and fancy warehousemen, who in their turn retailed them to an art-loving public, framed in gold, at one and eleven pence three farthings, and the artist's rate of pay was five shillings a dozen, panels supplied, but not the paint. To see Jimmy attack these was the child Aline's delight. In after years she wept in a foolish way over the memory. 
he would do half a dozen at a time, first dash in the foregrounds, either meadows or stretches of shore, then wash in bold stormy skies, then a bit of water, smooth or rugged according as it was meant to represent pool or sea. Then a few vigorous strokes would put in a ship and a lighthouse on one panel, a tree and a cow on a second, a woman and a cottage on a third. And all the time, as he worked at lightning speed, he would laugh and joke with the child, who sat fascinated by the magic with which each mysterious mass of daubs and smudges grew into a living picture under his hand. When his invention was at a loss, he would call upon her to suggest accessories, and if she cried out, Windmill! suddenly there would spring from under the darting brush-point a mill with flapping sails against the sky. Now and again, in his hurry, Jimmy would make a mistake, and Aline would shriek with delight. "'Why, Jimmy, that's a cow!' And sure enough, horned and uddered, and with casual tail, a cow was wandering over the ocean, mildly speculating on the lighthouse. Then Jimmy would roar with laughter, and he would tether the cow to a boy and put in a milkmaid in a boat coming to milk the cow and at Aline's breathless suggestion, a robber with a bow and arrow shooting the unnatural animal from the lighthouse top. Thus he would waste an hour elaborating the absurdity, finishing it off beautifully, so that it should be worthy of a place on Aline's bedroom wall. The months and years passed, and Jimmy found himself, if not on the high road to fortune, at least relieved of the necessity of frequenting the murky byways aforesaid. He even acquired a little reputation as a portrait-painter, much to his conscientious but comical despair. "'I'm taking people's money under false pretenses,' he would say. "'I am an imaginative painter. I can't do portraits. Your real portrait-painter can jerk the very soul out of a man and splash it onto his face. I can't. Why do they come to me to be photographed when Brown, Jones, or Robinson would give them a portrait? Why can't they buy my subject-pictures, which are good?' In taking their money, I am a mercenary, unscrupulous villain. Indeed, if Aline had not been there to keep him within the bounds of sanity, his quixotism might have led him to send his clients to Brown or Jones, where they could get better value for their money. But Aline was there, rising gradually from the little child into girlhood, and growing in grace day by day. After all, the charwoman seemed to be right. The tender plant, left to itself, thrived, shut up, apparently of its own accord, much to Jimmy's mystification. It never occurred to him that he was the all-in-all all of her training, her mother, father, nurse, teacher, counsellor, example. Everything she was susceptible of being taught by a human being, he taught her. From the common rudiments when she was a little child, to the deeper things of literature and history when she was a ripening maiden. Her life was bound up with his. Her mind took the prevailing colour of his mind, as if inevitably as the grasshopper takes the green of grass, or the locust the grey-brown of the sand. But Jimmy, in his simple way, regarded the girl's sweet development as a miracle of spontaneous growth. Yet Aline, on her part, instinctively appreciated the child in Jimmy, and from very early years assumed a quaint attitude of protection in common everyday matters. From the age of twelve she knew the exact state of his financial affairs, and gravely deliberated with him over items of special expenditure. And when she was fourteen, she profited by a change in housekeepers to take upon herself the charge of the household. Her unlimited knowledge of domestic science was another thing that astounded Jimmy, who to the end of his days would have cheerfully given two shillings a pound for potatoes. And thus, 
while adoring Jimmy, and conscious that she owed him the quickening of the soul within her, she became undisputed mistress of her small material domain, and regarded him as a kind of godlike baby. At last there came a memorable day. According to a custom five or six years old, Jimmy and Aline were to spend New Year's Eve with some friends, the Fruin Smiths. He was a rising architect who had lately won two or three important competitions, and had gradually been extending his scale of living. The New Year's Eve party was to be a much more elaborate affair than usual. Aline had received a beautifully printed card of invitation, with dancing in the corner. She looked through her slender wardrobe. Not a frock could she find equal to such a festival. And as she gazed wistfully at the simple child's finery laid out upon her bed, a desire that had dawned vaguely some time before, and had by week by week broadened into craving, burst into the full blaze of a necessity. She sat down on her bed, and puckered her young brows, considering the matter in all its aspects. Then, with her sex's guilelessness, she went down to the studio, where Jimmy was painting, and put her arms round his neck. Did he think she should get a new frock for Mrs. Fruinsmith's party? "'My dear child,' said Jimmy in astonishment, "'what an idiotic question!' "'But I want a really nice one,' said Aline, coaxingly. "'Then get one, dear,' said Jimmy, swinging round on his stool so as to look at her. "'But I'd like you to give me this one as a present. I don't want you to be like the others that I help myself to, and you know nothing about, although they're all presents if it comes to that. I want you to give me this one, specially.' Jimmy laid down palette and malstrick and brush, and from a letter-case in his pocket drew out three five-pound notes. "'Will this buy one?' The girl's eyes filled with tears. Oh, "'You are silly, Jimmy,' she cried. "'A quarter of it will do.' She took one of the notes, kissed him, and ran out of the studio, leaving Jimmy wondering why the female sex was so prone to weeping. The next day he saw a strange woman established at the dining-room table. He learned that it was a dressmaker. For the next week an air of mystery hung over the place. The girl, in her neat short frock, and with her soft brown hair tied with a ribbon, went about her household duties as usual, but there was a subdued light in her eyes that Jimmy noticed but could not understand. Occasionally he inquired about the new frock. It was progressing famously, said Aline. It was going to be a most beautiful frock. He would have seen nothing like it since he was born. Vanity, thy name is little girls, he laughed, pinching her chin. On the evening of the 31st of December, Jimmy, in his well-worn evening suit, came down to the dining-room, and for the first time in his life waited for Aline. He sat down by the fire with a book. The cab that had been ordered drew up outside. It was a remarkable thing for Aline to be late. After a while the door opened, and a voice said, "'I am ready.' Jimmy rose, turned round, and for a moment stared stupidly at the sight that met his eyes. It was Aline, certainly, but a new Aline, quite a different Aline from the little girl he had known hitherto. Her brown hair was done up in a mysterious manner on the top of her head, and the tip of a silver-mounted tortoise-shell comb, a present she afterwards confessed from Constance Deering, who was in her secret, peeped coquettishly from the coils. The fashionably cut white evening dress showed her neck and shoulders and pretty round arms, and displayed in a manner that was a revelation the delicate curves of her young figure. A little gold locket that Jimmy had given her rose and fell on her bosom. 
she met his stare in laughing, blushing defiance, and whisked round so as to present a side view of the costume. The astonishing thing had a train. "'God bless my soul!' cried Jimmy. "'Never entered my head!' "'What?' "'That you're a young woman, that you've grown up, that will have all the young men in the place falling in love with you, that you'll be getting married, and that I've become a decrepit old fogey. Well, God bless my soul!' She came up and put her hands on his shoulders and kissed him. "'You think it becoming, don't you, Jimmy?' "'Becoming! Why, it's ravishing, it's irresistible. Do you mean to say that you've got all that, tufts and shoes and everything, out of a five-pound note?' She nodded. "'Good Lord!' said Jimmy, in astonishment. In this manner came realisation of the fact that the tiny child he had undressed and put to sleep in his own bed ten years before had grown into a woman. The shock brought back some of the old perplexities, and created for a short while an odd shyness in his dealings with her. He treated her deferentially, regarded apologetically the mean viands on which he forced this fresh-winged goddess to dine, went out and wasted his money on adornments befitting her rank, and behaved with such pathetic foolishness that Aline, crying and laughing, threatened to run away and earn her living as a nursery-maid if he did not amend his conduct. Whereupon there was a very touching scene, and Jimmy's undertaking to revert to his previous brutality put their relations once more on a sound basis. But all the same, there stole into Jimmy's environment a subtle grace which the sensitive in him was quick to perceive. Its fragrance revived the tender grace of a departed day before he had taken Aline, a day that had ended in a woeful flight to Paris, where he had arrived just in time to follow through the streets a poor little funeral procession to a poor little graveside in the cemetery of Bagneux. Her name was Sidonie Bourdin, and she was a good girl, and had loved Jimmy with all her heart. The tender grace was that of March violets. The essence of a maid's springtide diffused itself throughout the house, and springtide began to bud again in the man's breast. It was a strange, hyperphysical transfusion of quickening sap. His jesting pictured himself as of a sudden grown hoary, the potential father of a full-blown woman, two or three years short of grandfatherdom. But these were words thrown off from the very lightness of a mood, and vanishing like bubbles in the air. Deep down worked the craving of the man still young for love and romance and the sweet message in a woman's eyes. It was a gentle madness, utterly unsuspected by its victim, but a madness such as the god first inflicts upon him whom he desires to drive to love's destruction. In the middle of it all, while Aline and himself were finding a tentative footing on the newly established basis of their relationship, the ironical deity took him by the hand and led him into the cold and queenly presence of Norma Hardacre. After that, Jimmy fell back into his old ways with Aline, and the great frock episode was closed. End of chapter 4